Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the first Bunker Roundtable of 2022 with me, Andrew Harrison. Where have you been over the break? I've been in this country and I hope that settles the matter. On this week's edition, we're setting out the year ahead at home and internationally. In the UK, can Boris Johnson get himself out of his tailspin? Let's hope not. And what sort of country will emerge from the pandemic? On the economy, there's a nightmare year ahead with a rising cost of living and the government desperate to cut taxes in the face of good advice. And on the world stage, there are presidential elections in Brazil and France, tensions still high in Ukraine and the South China Sea, and the small matter of midterms in the US, which could derail the Biden presidency and give control back to extremist Republicans. So much to look forward to. No wonder we're in a bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. We hope you had a good Christmas, pretending that the outside world didn't exist. Let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to former diplomat, presenter of the fantastic Doomsday Watch podcast and our official world news desk, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Andrew. Did you uh, ruin Christmas at home by explaining all the various ways that the world's going to end in uh, 2022? Well, I do that every year and, you know, I, the invitations have started to dry up. I can't understand why. Well, it was a very Omicron Christmas, wasn't it? What, what was your favourite bit? The government bringing masks back into classrooms with just one day's notice or the government urging everybody to order loads of lateral flow tests without actually checking that the delivery company was closing for Christmas? Well, I think the lateral flow test one was particularly special, wasn't it? Because uh, the, there's been this message that we've all got to change our behaviour and get these tests and then it turns out you can't find them anywhere. And those people who stockpile them are feeling very smug. And of course, throughout the whole pandemic, it's been a stockpiler's pandemic. So I think it's nice to see that the stockpile community continuing to be at the head of the head of the crowd. Yes, we are all private walker from Dad's Army now, on there for the younger listeners. So what's going on with the masks in schools? I mean, it, this seems to be such a strange decision to make. You know, as if the government saying, well, we said there'd be no new, new restrictions. We've got to do something. So here are some restrictions, but they won't necessarily affect you, conservative voter. They're only going to affect kids. Well, I think that's exactly what it is. You know, the, the, uh, the 16-year-olds don't have the vote. Probably parents of school-aged children are not that much of a Tory core vote. I mean, that's a massive overgeneralization, mm-hmm. but I can imagine that it's um, less of a less of a problem. So I suspect that's what happened. But for for what it's worth, as the uh, you know the the youth correspondent of the bunker, because I know that's the way you see me. <laughs> yes, I, I did. I did an extensive consultation with the one teenager in my household, being my daughter, and and she told me that actually she felt quite cool about it because. It meant there was less pressure on her to uh, to look good. So those are the pressures on teenage girls being lessened by the mask mandate. I thought there'd be a fashion mask pressure on the go there, but I don't know. Who knows? I guess, <laughs> I guess we'll find out in time. Also back in the bunker, hello to writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hello, Andrew. So Justin, there was a late Christmas present for all centrist running dogs uh, when Tony Blair got a knighthood. And there's now a petition with which has just reached 600,000 signatures saying that he should be denied this knighthood. Why does Tonti continue to drive both the very online left and GB News so white with rage? 
Yes, this was just the tonic on New Year's Eve. Um, I was hoping he was going to tweet something like, I feel the sword of Her Majesty upon my shoulder. But uh, <laughs> old Tonzi missed the uh, missed the opportunity there. Um, it's very strange. I mean, he seems to arouse a degree of raging fury in people who I'm fairly sure weren't even alive when he took office and certainly can't remember the god-awful state of the country before Labour took over and drastically improved things for very many ordinary people. I mean, it's the enduring power of it. It's like if in 1997 I'd still been banging on about Harold Wilson and something that had happened, you know, on his watch. Um, I mean, the obvious answer is that it's about Iraq, but mm. I don't think it's really that, as many of the other views that his critics hold seem to demonstrate that the welfare of Muslims in far-flung countries is not especially high on their list of priorities. Um, I suspect it's more that he's a kind of living repudiation of their entire worldview. You know, the fact that when offered the chance, ordinary working people voted for rather boring technocratic centrism rather than the Orgreave reenactment society of Corbynism rather scuttles their entire worldview, which can only really be sustained by a complete suspension of disbelief about what the country actually is and who the electorate actually are. Our special guest today is Antonia Jennings, Associate Director of the Centre for Local Economic Strategies and an advisor to Sustrans, the walking and cycling charities. Hello, Antonia. How are you doing? Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. I'm delighted to have you. And we're going to be talking about the economy in depth later, but I wanted to ask you about transport, uh, cycling and walking are pretty much the only good things to have come out of the pandemic. Um, but we're sort of start, starting to see cars returning to the streets now. Are we in danger of letting the gains from the pandemic in this small and limited area kind of slip through our fingers if we just go back to the way it was? Well, you're right to say it's a good thing to come out of the pandemic. We've seen that four in 10 of us have reported that through the pandemic, we're walking or cycling more. Unfortunately, but perhaps predictably, this has also come alongside people being more concerned about the safety of public transport. So as we start to move past the pandemic or learn to live with it, we are seeing cars return to our streets in the numbers that they were there before. And so Government really needs to be taking measures to minimise this trend and be helping with access to bikes and safety equipment, training on how to cycle safely and, of course, you know, development of safe, active travel routes. And while we've seen some of that take place in the government's active travel strategy last year, um, much, much more needs to be done. And in particular, active travel really needs to be fully integrated with other departments. So by that, I mean linking active travel with health, for example, with planning departments, climate departments, etc. I used to see a very enthusiastic cyclist pedalling up the, the Pentonville Road in North London when I worked there, huffing and puffing on his, on his bike. And it was Boris Johnson, who then seemed to be very, very keen on bikes and now suddenly isn't. I don't, I don't, know, what, don't know where he, uh, he lost his love affair with it. There's also quite a lot of, on the transport front, quite a lot of aggressive debate around low traffic neighbourhoods. And obviously, this is a vast, vast can of worms, which is also hugely freighted with kind of cultural stuff and left right stuff. Does Sustrans have a position on LTNs? Yes, we do. We have an extensive position on it. Um, yeah, it, LTNs, it's a shame. It's fast becoming a new kind of culture wars topic um, yeah. almost. I think perhaps the first thing to do is to outline exactly what an LTN is and what it isn't. There's a lot of misinformation out there. So an LTN is introduced when an area is deemed to have particularly high levels of poor air quality, deprivation, um, childhood obesity, um, low public transport accessibility, 
And so they're very much there to help local residents, not pit them against the government. And what an LTN is, or what it normally does, is it involves blocking a road or a number of roads sometimes off to motor vehicles. However, they will never block private vehicles from accessing their home or business. So in short, they're a good thing. However, with any change in transport policy, we need to make sure that sufficient support measures are in place for those that end up worse off. And when it comes to LTNs, we are seeing that some small business owners, people that work for small businesses are having to travel further to get to their place of work. And alongside that, especially in London, although not exclusively, we're seeing higher and higher penalties put on high polluting vehicles. So with this ecosystem of interventions, there's a huge sense of antagonism between those that feel they're being unfairly punished and government. So in short, I guess what I would say in the Sustrans line would be is that we need to advocate for both more subsidies to transition to cleaner vehicles um, and also potentially exploring subsidised access to active travel and public transport. Let's start off with the domestic political scene in 2022. Boris Johnson will be blearily returning to his desk after all those parties that he didn't attend over Christmas. He'll be facing a year unlike any in his prime ministership so far, with his party and his personal numbers underwater, the excuse of the pandemic fading and his own party verging on open revolt against his leadership. There are local elections and the Northern Ireland Assembly elections to look forward to on the 5th of May. Plus, there's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee and the Queen's Health to deal with. It's entirely possible that when London's three-year-delayed Elizabeth Line finally opens this year, the Queen might not be in the best position to market herself. Meanwhile, Keir Starmer's Labour Party are looking tanned, rested and ready. So what is coming up? Arthur, starting out with Boris Johnson, one gives a hostage to fortune here. What sort of a year is he in for, do you think? The year of getting found out, perhaps? I definitely think the found out bit is right. And arguably, that's already happened. Because for ages, people who didn't much like Boris Johnson would say, how does he get away with it? People could enumerate whether it was his his colourful private life or his attitude to uh, paying for things that he benefits from or telling the truth in public. You know, lots of people had the, their opinion on that. But it seemed that the wider public hadn't got onto it. But now I think that has changed. And of course, you can see the change in his approval rating. So I think it's a year he gets found out. But I am cautious of translating that into a wider political earthquake around him. Well, Johnson's approval rating dropped to 24% positive and 59% negative just before Christmas. When Margaret Thatcher resigned, she was on 60% dislike and 39% like. So it's not a di- an exactly direct comparison, but it's a pretty close one. She was doing better than Boris Johnson and she resigned. Did prime ministers come back from those sorts of numbers? Well, I think they can. uh, The other prime minister I looked at, I went back uh, earlier today to look at the numbers for Tony Blair. So in 2004, he dipped into the similar territory that Johnson's in at the moment, arguably had a higher positive, but also a higher negative. But, you know, the, the overall number was roughly similar. And he then, of course, won the 2005 election in spite of the Iraq war and all the other things that were going on at that time. But then he also had similar numbers to this when he finally stood down after the sort of Gordon Brown coup. I wouldn't say that prime ministers can't recover, but clearly there's a lot of serious uh, trouble that Johnson faces. And I certainly think he can't afford more of the kind of rolling crisis that we were seeing in December, where it just seemed almost a a daily programme of crises. 
I mentioned the local elections on the 5th of May. Um, they look an awful lot like a deadline for this government to get a grip of itself. If things are not turning around by then, is it hard to see him escaping doom, do you think? I personally think the local elections, it's something that a prime minister can shake off because in normal times, you expect the incumbent to do badly in in local elections and in by-elections, and that's a normal thing, and then they recover a bit at general elections. What I think would matter a lot more is if at the same time as a disaster is showing in local elections, we're seeing other major crises. So whether it's the cost of living crisis, I know we're going to talk about that much more later Mm -hmm. on, or things like that, where people are not just talking about uh, kicking out a bunch of councillors as a way of sending a message, but actually you've got major proportions of the British population not able to afford their ordinary lifestyle. I, I think that would that would be the big difference. And um, Justin, on our, on our last podcast of 2021, uh, here's Shah predicted that Boris Johnson won't be the Prime Minister by this time next year. Uh, what, what do you think? I'm somewhat wary of getting too carried away with that kind of thing, not because I think Johnson has some sort of bulletproof quality, but I think when we think of how ministerial careers end we tend to telescope time together in our memories and underestimate how long it takes to get rid of leaders even on the Tory side where we tend to think of them as being quite brutal you know major held on for five years after Black Wednesday you know which time we went through sort of cash for questions arms to Iraq got a pasting at the local elections and yet still won a leadership election in 95 um and one key thing that I think Johnson has going in his favour hugely right now is the sheer dearth of talent in the party if nothing else, I think that has given him a degree of security that he's cleared out, you know, a lot of people who would be potential challengers in a normal normal party. It's been really fascinating to see this sudden leak about Liz Truss's uh, fancy tastes in terms of dining. The idea that Quo Vardis in London was deemed to be simply too horrid for a uh, for a trade dinner, and it had to be uh, at the at the place of a of a conservative donor. And questions are immediately asked: Well, who's leaking this now, and why? Yeah, I mean, the, the conspiratorial mindset does sort of jump to that. Again, I'm not sure if it's that, which you know, it could well be because they don't seem a party that are particularly thick with sort of honour and covering for each other at the moment, but also. You know, as with a lot of this stuff that is starting to come out and stick with the Tory party, it's exactly what they've all been doing for the last 10 years. So Labour and Starmer amassed a, a, a noticeable lead since the end of November, really. We give parties advice at our peril, but what do you think Starmer ought to be doing with the stuff he's got in his back pocket at the moment? Because it does seem that, you know, you're in a position where never insult your enemy when he's making a mistake. Is, is, is Starmer on the right track, do you think? I think he is in that sense, and I think he's played it fairly deftly throughout the pandemic when you know all the focus grouping was saying that people didn't want to see Labour going in really hard on the government at essentially a time of national crisis. And he was under a lot of pressure from the, you know, the online and his sort of more vocal parts of the party to do so. I think he played that really deftly. For the party as a whole, I think the two things are I still think they need some really flagship policies that cut through that sort of land with the public. And I don't think that speech today quite had those. I think more broadly, there would be no shame in just accepting that Starmer is not an especially dynamic communicator. You know, I'm a fan of his. I like him. I like what he stands for. 
they're obviously trying with him, but it's not quite there in terms of that sort of natural ease of communication. However, there's a bunch of really good communicators under him. I think Lisa Nandy's really good, you know, Jess Phillips, David Lammy, even someone who I have some issues with, like Angela Rayner, I think is instinctively a good communicator and a good voice for the party. And so I think starting to sell the party much more as a broad team with real strength and depth would both cover for some of those comms shortcomings that he has, but would also start to frame them in the public eye as a collective group with the possible strength and depth to be considered as a government. And I think finally it would also reassure the public that the cranks who populated the party under Corbyn aren't still just lurking with a new front man. Antonio, we mentioned the uh, the local elections coming up, and many of these the seats in England last voted in 2018 when things are very different. May was Prime Minister, Corbyn was Labour leader. Between then and now, we had the 2019 election, the red wall turns blue election. It looks very much like that coalition is kind of losing its connection to Johnson. The thing that was supposed to maintain that that connection was the the much delayed levelling up bill, and that's supposed to come out this month. We're promised bold policies on how to make tangible change to communities and transform town centres. Can you really delay your flagship policy by two years and then expect the people who changed their vote in order to support it to still be with you? It is too little too late. This levelling up paper has been delayed and delayed, and it's left people that care about regional development completely in the dark about what's going on with, as you said, this flagship policy. But I think the wider thing that we have to stress here is that levelling up is not a new idea. It's a new slogan, but it's not a new idea. I'm 30 years old, and every government in my lifetime has made promises to address regional (laughs) inequality. And, you know, the last major effort to do this was actually under Blair, who launched regional development agencies in the early noughties. For what it's worth, they cost the public purse about £15 billion, which is three times the amount this government has so far promised to level up the country. But the wider question is, did they solve regional inequality? And no, they didn't. In fact, it got worse. And as of yet, we have no idea why this effort is going to be any different. Do we know any more to it than, you know, the slogans and the leaks so far? I mean, as someone who's closely connected to this, have you any idea what to expect? Honestly, so far, no. I think really key to this whole agenda is going to be the government defining what a levelled up region looks like. So under which metrics is, you know, regional, a reduction in regional inequality going to be deemed a success? So are we just talking about growth, for example, or are we talking about a reduction in child poverty, you know, greater equality of opportunity? And until we know what a levelled up region looks like and what this programme's definition of success is, we can't really say if that it's much more than a slogan. The Times says that Gove, uh, who's now the levelling up minister, wants an expansion of local mayors and every English region to have a local leader with powers similar to City Khan's by the end of the decade. Now, setting aside whether this government will be there at the end of a, of a decade, do mayors work for regions? I mean, if you've got someone like Andy Burnham, you might think yes. But I mean, as again, as someone very close to this, do regional mayors work in the way that they are being sold here? So... In principle, the devolution of power away from Westminster is a good idea. We need more power and accountability to be evenly spread across the country. And if we don't do so, we miss the opportunity of tapping into the expertise of people within our communities. But of course, in practice, this is only going to work with adequate funding. And what we've actually seen with the expansion of the mayoral system is the reduction of means-tested funding funding for local government, so funding essentially going to the areas of greatest need, and an increase in uh, competition-style funding pots. And in this kind of 
current halfway house, what we're seeing is areas and mayors pitted against each other to compete for very limited funding. And what's happening is, in turn, that's allowing central government to shift blame, shift responsibility for broken local government finance onto local government itself. I thought the Conservatives hated local mayors and were trying their, trying their best to kind of defang them and bring in first past the post to remove uh, awkward mayors or make it harder for them to be elected. It seems strange that they would go for more of them. The Tories like streamlined government, right? So with the expansion of local mayors, they're seeing an opportunity to consolidate the many layers of local government that currently exist. However, you know, you mentioned Andy Burnham, he's a really good example. This is where I think the Tory strategy backfires because local mayors can lead to locally rooted leaders standing up for their communities on a national stage with great success. So it's a tale of two halves, I guess. You're a bit more on the Labour left than, than uh, the rest of us on the panel. How, how do you think Starmer is, is doing? What do you think he ought to be doing to press that advantage that I just mentioned to Justin? Well, the first thing I'd say is I'm here in my capacity as a representative of the Centre <laughs> for Local Economic <laughs> Strategies, which is a non-partisan okay. independent Fair enough. Um So, yeah, but look, the, the UK, as I've just outlined, has a particular problem with regional inequality, right? So we're one of the most regionally unequal countries in the developed world globally, and public services are the most centralised in Europe. So we desperately need to be looking at a holistic approach to tackle regional inequality. To avoid creating new divisions, which frankly these new competition-style funding pots do, I would suggest that all devolution needs to be done through a new devolution framework. And I think that's what Labour should be calling for. It needs to be rebranded because that's not that's not going to fly with the public, a new devolution framework. But I think um, the aims of it could really resonate with a lot of people. And I think the framework should probably do two, uh, three things. So firstly, it should commit to letting go of power through a really irreversible transfer of funding and responsibility across regions within the UK. Secondly, it needs to be co-produced with the communities that will benefit from it. Devolution efforts historically have been very much done to communities and not with them. And finally, it should or it should be seen as an opportunity to reset relations between central government and local government, which are under a lot of strain at the moment. And it could replace kind of that competition mentality with cooperation and trust and open up new opportunities for collaboration between local governments, between local government and central government, and really shift the governance model of the many, many branches of local government. Arthur, Antonio mentioned devolution. There is a strong possibility that Nicola Sturgeon is going to bring forward a bill for a second Scottish independence vote this year. The UK government would then almost certainly challenge it. It'd probably end up at the Supreme Court. Does the weakened state of this government make Scottish independence more likely to move forward this year, do you think? Well, it definitely makes Nicola Sturgeon uh, more likely to push her case. If you get this disputed issue and it goes to the Supreme Court, nothing's going to move quickly. So um, I, I don't think you're, you're going to see, you know, something like a vote happen this year or even a resolution of the question of whether a vote will take place. But, yeah, the, the, if the Conservatives are on a back foot, there's all the more reason for the, for the SNP to push them because, of course, just by opposing the referendum, the Tories in Scotland look like they're being kind of colonialist and talking down to Scotland and not giving Scotland the right to govern itself and all the rest of it. So it's a very effective strategy for Sturgeon, um, even if the actual chance of getting a vote to happen is relatively low. Justin, finally, before we move on to to the wider world and the economy, it's an exceedingly sensitive subject, but the Queen's Platinum Jubilee is in February, it's a bank holiday in June, she's 96 in February. 
without tempting fate, we're going to have to brace ourselves for the end of an era eventually. For that to happen after these very painful years of, of, of COVID and the lockdown and so forth, what are we going to have to deal with psychologically, do you think? Which, you know, it's not impossible that it could happen this year. I think it's going to be really deeply strange, not so much for the passing of her personally. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly ambivalent about the royal family as an institution, although I've softened on that somewhat as I've got older. But I think the removal of one of the last and most public human links back to a very different time in our collective past will trigger not a trauma exactly, but I think a very profound outpouring of emotion. I remember in that excellent Guardian article a few years ago about what are the protocols that take place when the monarch passes, there was a line that stuck with me where the writer said, you know, people who are not expecting to cry will cry. And I think in many cases, we won't even really know why it hits us. I think even while we may think on a logical level that the response will be excessive or illogical or purely symbolic, I suspect it will still resonate in a very strange way that I will think will take us many, many years to fully comprehend. Twenty twenty two could be a year of a cost of living catastrophe uh, for, in Britain if a report from the Resolution Foundation proves correct. Rising inflation, increasing energy prices, and an increase in national insurance are going to cost the average household twelve hundred pounds a year, according to the foundation. And it's all taking place in an economy battered by Brexit and COVID. GDP is slumping as Omicron appeared, and COVID nineteen pushed up the cost of raw materials, disrupted supply chains. It's not a good time. So, what can we expect this year? What is on Rishi Sunak's desk, and is he addressing the right? problems. Antonia Jennings, as, as we've just been saying, is uh, of, from the Centre for Local Economic Strategies. She's here to explain. Antonia, first, what is the scale of this cost of living crisis? Are we looking at something similar to what happened in the 1970s? Potentially, the scale of the cost of living crisis is huge. The thing to stress here, I think, is that this crisis wasn't solely created by the COVID pandemic. The UK already had a decade of underinvestment and close to obliteration of many public services before the pandemic hit. So we were already on shaky foundations. And what we're seeing now is the results of a pandemic exacerbating these trends on hyperdrive. We have, of course, one in three children in poverty, about the same number of adults living below the minimum income standard. And we have many families having to choose between heating and eating this winter. And for the sixth largest economy in the world, this is nothing short of a disgrace. If you had to sketch out what's likely to happen this year in terms of the macro trends, what what are you expecting? So I think at the highest level, we can expect the economy to move to start living with the virus instead of waiting for it to be eradicated. So we're probably looking at the phasing out of the emergency measures that we've seen over the last couple of years um, and for them to be replaced with longer term funding settlements. We're also potentially seeing new permanent policies around how we live and work in the time of COVID. I mean, we tend to see the economy in terms of GDP and interest rates and inflation and so forth. But analysis from PwC indicates that it's probably going to be a very polarised recovery. Some areas are going to recover stronger than others and more quickly than others. This takes us right back to what we we're talking about with, with, with levelling up. It seems to fly in the face of the way the, the the rationale on which this government w- was elected. Is that what you're seeing from your work in local economics? Yeah, absolutely. And I think as the PwC report highlights, the three main areas of the economy which are set to struggle um, on their journey to recovery are firstly, communities that are disproportionately affected by the cost of living crisis, 
businesses which had been negatively affected by COVID, um, and also individual incomes and ensuring that those incomes are rising with the cost of living. So maybe taking them in turn and what government could be doing on each of them. So thinking about communities which are affected by the cost of living crisis, the government really needs to be reconsidering the minimum wage level set at the last budget, given inflation rates have come in higher than expected. Government also really needs to ensure that firms are not unfairly profiteering from the crisis. So perhaps that could mean a windfall tax for those that have had disproportionate profits. And then on to um, businesses hit by the Omicron wave. We desperately need furlough for businesses hit by the Omicron wave. Um, and as in other countries, that scheme should be put on a permanent footing. So it's in place for other uh, potential future variants and other crises of other descriptions, therefore giving businesses more confidence for the future. And furthermore, government should be looking at targeted grant support for businesses who are losing revenue due to reduced demand or having to um, stop trading due to staff isolating. And then finally, uh, just on people's incomes, because there's a lot the government could be doing in this arena too. I think first and foremost, we desperately need to boost sick pay in this country. Um, we have the lowest sick pay in Europe, and it needs to be increased to 80% of previous earnings. And we need to abolish that lower earnings limit. Of course, universal credit, um, the uplift needs to be restored. Of course, that is going to help desperately poor people um, through the cost of living crisis. And then finally, I mentioned that a lot of families are choosing between heating and eating. And the extent to which fuel poverty is a problem in this country is um, yeah, much under-discussed and much worse than a lot of people think. But um, we do have something called the cold weather payment, but this really is quite pitiful and the eligibility is very narrow. It needs to be increased, eligibility expanded, and potentially the government could be looking at for example, a VAT cut on domestic energy. Local economic strategy is your thing. Are you seeing any kind of recognition during the the kind of pandemic phase of the of the of the the things that can be learned from building back from a local base rather than a top down national one? Are there are there lessons and things that can be pulled out? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the really exciting thing that's been happening in local politics over not just through the pandemic but the last ten years and internationally as well is that we're really seeing progressive local leaders flexing the boundaries of what's possible under adverse, let's say, national policy. And so I work specifically on something called community wealth building, which is a model for local economic development that advocates for inclusive economic growth. And its fundamental aim is to ensure that wealth generated in any community stays in that community as opposed to being, you know, extracted by a company, you know, often based, for example, in a tax haven. And then secondly, it's aiming to make sure that local economies are more democratically owned by the people that make them up. So across the country, we're really seeing an explosion of community wealth building, which is really exciting. Um, most famously, we have the Preston model in the Northwest, but we also have the Welsh and Scottish governments uh, rolling out programmes of community wealth building. We're also seeing the combined authority in the Midlands adopt community wealth building. And yeah, it's really taking off across the country. And when it comes to building back better locally, community wealth building really is the framework for that. Um, you know, and critically involving local communities in developing the solutions that are going to best suit their area. Inflation is the thing that particularly for uh, you know traditional economists is like a bellwether of things worsening. Currently inflation reached 5.1% at the end of last year, it's the highest level in, in a decade. 
it's been such a long time since we've dealt with serious inflation that for many younger people, they never really experienced it themselves. Given that it's for, it, for many voters, it's, it's going to be a, a, a new phenomenon, a new thing to be suffering. Are we mentally equipped to deal with sharply rising prices? No, I, I would argue. Mm. I mean, as you said, um, we haven't seen um, extreme inflation in this country for a while. So we will we will have to see. But, um, you know, inflation, like many other economic trends, are is to some extent a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if people panic about it, it may result in consumers taking action that, that drive it up further. But I think something to stress about the current spike in inflation is, you know, of course, it's driven by the impact of the supply of goods and services from COVID. So lockdown severely disrupted factories and, you know, other production units. But it's also being affected by other environmental factors. So for example, droughts and frosts in Brazil over the last 18 months have damaged coffee output, and that's pushed up prices to record highs. Similarly, energy supplies have been hit by surging demand in Asia as economies have reopened. And so this is something that may weather, for lack of a better phrase, with with, with time. <laughs> However, um, remaining at a higher level is perhaps something that as a society we're going to have to get used to. And we are in the strange position now of we've got an avowed Thatcherite chancellor mm. who has spent 18 months injecting large amounts of money into the economy, very much against uh, his personal instincts. <laughs> and he's now leaking that he's going to be a tax cutter and that that is the, the aim um, of and potentially flying a kite for his own future leadership of the party. What will be the consequences of enacting those old fashioned conservative tax cuts in this new post pandemic environment where you have got serious inflation problems, you've got a serious cost of living crisis? And you have, I mean, we can talk about funding of the debt in a minute, because obviously that is a very vexed question, but you need to fund the debt at all. But what will be the consequences of, of, of those sorts of tax cuts now? Under Sunak's own fiscal rules, he says that government should only borrow for investment, which means that day-to-day spending is covered by taxes. And so according to those rules, a tax cut would mean less money for day-to-day spending, right? So that's less money for spending on things such as healthcare, housing, adult social care. And these are all aspects of our economy in crisis. So frankly, a tax cut could push them to breaking point. However, it's really important to remember there are many different forms of tax. So a windfall tax on companies that have made huge profits um, from the pandemic could do a lot to alleviate some of these crises. So it will all depend on where the tax cuts fall and upon who. But I would say that if tax cuts overall result in less money available for day-to-day spending in a crisis, that potentially, you know, could be a very bad thing. And we often get listeners getting in touch, telling us, shouting at us to stop talking in terms of paying (laughs) off the COVID debt. Uh, They say, you know, you're buying into the Conservatives line that the economy is a household budget. It isn't. Think about it completely differently. You know, firstly, are you expecting Sunak to observe that rule of his own to pay down the debt? Sunak seems fairly hell-bent, for better or worse, on sticking to his own fiscal rules and also ensuring that the debt-to-GDP ratio remains below 100%. As you've implied that some of your listeners uh, have written in and said, this debt-to-GDP ratio being 100% is a completely arbitrary figure. There's no economic rationale behind it. And what matters isn't whether the debt-to-GDP ratio is at 90% or 110%, but it's the terms of the debt to the public purse. And right now, the government can borrow at absolutely record lows with around 0% interest in real terms during a crisis. This is exactly when investment is needed to kickstart the economy. So 
what I'm saying, to paraphrase, I feel like that was a little bit um, garbled, but um, what makes debt unsustainable isn't its absolute level, but it's about how much it costs the government in interest payments. And at the moment, they're currently at their second lowest level since the 50s. So now is very much the time to invest and, you know, deprioritize worry about the debt level. Yeah, if, if Sunak was, an, was as unorthodox about the debt as he has been with furlough, with extremely anti-Tory measures of uh, basically paying people uh, not to work. If, if you had a kind of Damascene conversion somewhere at, uh, <laughs> at you know at midnight in the moonlight, uh, is there, is there a, like a Tory version of modern monetary, monetary theory hidden out there somewhere? that he could get away with the way he got away with furlough. I mean, whenever the listeners write to me, say, look, that is never going to happen. This is not what he believes. What do you think? Again, unfortunately, I think it comes back to how willing he is going to be to bend some of these fiscal rules. So another one of his fiscal rules is capping public investment at 3%. Um, Again, this is completely arbitrary. Maybe others would would think otherwise, but I I think it is. Um, And especially, as I said, as in real terms, the government can borrow at negative rates. So if he was a little more unorthodox, he would scrap this rule. The UK economy, as I said, crying out for investment, building homes, insulating them, renewable energy, railways, broadband, etc. And so now is not the time to cap public investment at 3%. If this was abandoned, then perhaps we'd have yeah a, a better and slightly more orthodox chancellor, I, I suppose. But um, I mean, his movements over the past 18 months have been so... I don't know, not sticking to any doctrine. It's hard to put him in a box. <laughs> Justin, I wanted to ask you, I mean, it's, you know, historically been the role of the Conservatives to paint themselves as the, the custodians of the economy. An opinion poll recently has Labour level with the Tories on economic competence. Is this a kind of a make or break for, you know, the, the uh, Labour Party's suitability for government? I mean, you know, the, the, the message of, uh, of new Labour was you can trust us on the economy. Yeah, that poll was slightly lost in the wash around Christmas, but it was remarkable. It showed, showed Johnson and Starmer at governments both level on 31% for who would be best running the economy, which even opinion them themselves flagged up as something they'd never seen before. I'm not totally sure why this frankly bogus idea that the right are fiscally prudent has always stuck. Um and I've always assumed it's some collective folk memory of the winter of discontent and the three-day week. And it may just be that the salience of that is fading as fewer and fewer voters actually remember it. But I think you know it may also be that, as you alluded to before, in the last 18 months, we've quietly seen pretty much the entire conservative economic ideology that we've lived under for most of our lives completely ripped up in terms of how they responded to the pandemic. You know, unprecedented amounts of money have been given out. Failing businesses have been propped up. Entire sectors have been quite aggressively subsidised. And while that might not have fully discredited the Tories with most people, I think it's probably upended the chessboard enough that a few of those old assumptions and orthodoxies no longer seem to apply. Antonia, last word on the economy before we move on. If listeners are going to take away one thing to think about for this year. What is the key, most important, most salient thing they should be thinking about in the economy for 2022? I think it's not 2022 specific, but when I when I speak to people that are not as directly in, involved in this kind of work, they tend to think that the economy is something um, abstract that happens to us. So I guess I would just say it's not that, it's the world around us. It's whether you can afford childcare, it's whether you're on a zero hour contract, you know, whether you have a local safe green space for your kids. And we really have agency over shaping these things. So 
if you have the energy or resource, I would just urge listeners to to get involved to, to you know with causes that that matter to you. So whether that's engagement in local government or joining a union or you know working with your community in some other way, we all have the ability to make our local economy a better place. Finally, it's the least wise thing in the world to try and make predictions about international politics, but we're going to try. Doomsday Watch host Arthur Snell is our man on the international desk. There is a vast amount to take into account for 2022, and it could all become obsolete by tea time. So we're going to try and boil every one of the following 10 points down to the tightest, pithiest take going. It is a parlour game we are calling Hostages to Fortune. Arthur, China and the South China Sea is one of your key areas of concern. This October, Xi Jinping is going to be anointed supreme leader of China until 2028. China's being very assertive right now. What is happening and is Xi's kind of elevation to supremacy a a danger point for this area? Well, I think we're already in a danger point. It's very interesting that there is a huge amount of focus, rightly, on the crisis surrounding Ukraine and Russia, and much less focus on the fact of China's under Xi basic commitment to recovering its control over Taiwan. And the reason I say there's there should be more focus on that is quite simply that ultimately no one really thinks that Vladimir Putin wants to take control of Ukraine. He just wants to have a higher degree of influence over that country than he currently has. Whereas it is absolutely without doubt that China wants to regain control of Taiwan. And there's a lot of evidence that the person who would like to do that is Xi Jinping. So that that is why I think it, it's a very high risk situation. On Russia and Ukraine, Adam Schiff, who's the chair of the US House Intelligence Committee, he thinks it's very likely that Russia will in, invade Ukraine soon. Uh, and, and you don't. Why would Putin go up to the brink on this and not actually do it, do you think? Well, the first thing to say is that Russia has already invaded Ukraine. And a, a lot of the world has kind of normalise that. I'm not saying that people accept it or say it's okay, but Russia has taken Crimea, has basically incorporated that into their own territory, and they've also occupied parts of eastern Ukraine into a messy stalemate. But what we're talking about here is whether there will be a new overt Russian invasion of the other bits of Ukraine. The reason I don't think it would happen is that Putin gets quite a lot of benefits from doing what he's doing at the moment, which is he's he's escalating the tensions. He's making a lot of people think he's serious. He's massing troops on that frontier. And he gets various positives from it. One of the positives is that the world takes him very seriously. He gets Zoom meetings with President Biden. And the other positive that he can translate out of that is that back home, he continues to look like the leader of a superpower. And that's what Putin wants. We've got a uh, an episode of Doomsday Watch on this very topic. Putin wants to be taken very seriously, both at home and abroad. I don't think Putin actually wants to have the awful uh, kind of meat grinder war that he would end up fighting with a Ukrainian military, which has increased its uh, capability massively since 2014. And of course, would be very likely to draw on a lot of support from Western countries. Well, a lot of this is going to depend on the US midterms, which you mentioned at the top of the show. It's very likely that the Democrats are going to take a spanking in this and it will empower the Trumpists. As you have reported on extensively in Doomsday Watch, fear of a US civil war is wor- is worsening. If the Democrats are defeated in this in these midterms, are they basically out of the 
following a presidential agenda business and into the saving democracy business? Well, I think so, because even now with the uh, Democrats holding, let's not forget they hold the House and the Senate, they've actually been almost unable to achieve anything of note. And now that's mostly thanks to two senators, Kirsten Sinema and um, Joe Manchin, who, in spite of being elected on a Democrat ticket, don't appear to see it as their duty to uh, carry out Democrat policies. But basically, if you think it's bad now, imagine what it's going to be like when they actually don't have a majority in either house. So they won't be able to pass anything. And of course, the, the sole objective of the Republicans will be to completely enmesh the White House in legislative uh, gridlock and, of course, start investigating. They can start getting those committees, all those committees that they f- refuse to cooperate with when it's about their stuff. They can start investigative committees. They can start framing Biden for all kinds of things he hasn't done. So so basically at that stage, yeah, the only thing left for the Democrats after the midterms, it seems to me, is to save democracy. In And what I mean specifically is to try to run a presidential election in 2024 where the number of votes cast is the factor that decides who the next president is, not how you can manipulate or intimidate the various uh, systems of operation of that election. It's just the, the actions of cinema and Manchin are just like breathtakingly irresponsible in terms of not just what it means for their own petty concerns and their own sex. It's like for the sake of donors, they are pl- they're placing the future of the entire country at risk. It just to me, it just beggars belief what's going on. For a long time, I couldn't get my head around it. I used to try to defend Manchin in particular because he comes from this incredibly conservative state, West Virginia. And you would say that it's utterly remarkable that he continues to be elected for that state and he has to, you know, respond to, to, to his voters in some way. But I think I think that's far too soft on him. He is the owner of a very successful coal brokerage. He is personally financially invested in the most mucky sort of fossil fuel. He makes millions of dollars from it. And I think it's pure corruption. I think that's what's going on. And it's tragic that that, that person with that character held the balance of power at this, at this precious time for democracy. But that's what it is. There are other key presidential elections uh, running up this year. Francis takes place on the 10th of April. We've already seen a properly inane Brexit-style row over the EU flag at the Arc de Triomphe. What are you expecting from the French presidential election? Well, I think... Uh, there is no chance of either of the two hard right candidates, by which we mean Eric Zemmour and uh, and uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, winning. And of course, that's an old theme in French politics. You see these hard right candidates get the second round, but in the second round, the large majority of the French people do no do not want someone like that as their president. Now we could say that it's a shame they even get as far as a second round. But that is what it is. Zemmour, for what it's worth, still hasn't managed to get enough mayors to uh, sign his nomination papers. So he's still not a formally accepted candidate, although I, I, I don't think that's in doubt that he could do that. So I think the interesting question would be if there were a runoff with Valérie Pécresse, who is the, the kind of mainstream right wing candidate. She's the first traditional French conservative candidate who looks like they have a bit more of a chance of getting through to the second round in, in, in the last few cycles. And of course, with Le Pen and Zemmour sort of splitting each other's votes, albeit targeting a slightly different demographic, Zemmour targets a slightly more kind of upper class, old fashioned Roman Catholic 
uh, viewpoint, whereas Marine Le Pen is very much populist working class. It is possible that Procress manages to come through the middle there, and then it's a it's a final round between Macron and Pécresse. And in that scenario, I don't think you can assume that Macron wins it. In Brazil, the Brazilian Trump is doing a Boris Johnson. Uh, Bolsonaro's approval ratings are at a record low of 19% by late November and 60% of the population think he's doing a bad job. Um, what are you betting on? Well, I think if you run a fair election, uh, Bolsonaro's out and Lula looks likely to be running. And of course, Lula retains a huge, former president, left-wing president. He retains an enormous amount of popularity, particularly among the working classes in Brazil. So that's what uh, you might say should happen. I think, well, I don't think that there is lots of evidence that Bolsonaro is planning the full Trump, by which I mean the attempted coup, the attempt to rig the election, the attempt to intimidate various election officials. So I don't think it is at all safe to assume that the votes will get counted and the uh, person with the highest number wins. So I think we're set for a very, very turbulent uh, situation in the Brazilian election. And rather like in America, actually, the Brazilian military, in spite of their history, are not on board with the kind of coups and the suspension of democracy. But there are lots of ways in which you can manipulate democratic processes. And I think Bolsonaro will try everything. There is no trick too dirty. Uh, So it will come down to a test of the integrity of that country's systems, just as America uh, was tested. And and it's hard to know how that will play out. Hungary, the conservative church-going father of seven, Peter Marquise, is up against Orban. Uh, Again, what are you betting on? Well, I think there, actually, uh, I I mean, I hate to commit myself, but I think Orban, I think it's Orban's to lose. I think he, um, he has, whilst he's done a huge amount to distort and degrade the institutions in his country, there is still ultimately, partly because of Hungary's membership of the European Union and where it sits in Central Europe, it is still fundamentally a country that has democratic ideals and particularly a lot of people who believe in those ideals. So I think that this approach of of all the different political groups uniting behind a single candidate and one as you say who is you can't call him he's not a leftist he's 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 um you know a social conservative his huge family uh speaks volumes to that i think it will be very hard for orban to portray him as some kind of uh tool of sinister globalist movements and all the usual anti-semitism and all the all the crap that orban plays so i'm quietly optimistic on this one but of course again you know that part of the point about populism is that you take power and then you hold on to power by destroying institutions and 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 that of course is what Orban has done there are so many other things we could pinpoint there's a presidential election in Kenya there's the continuing civil war in Ethiopia you are concerned that Iran will finally uh, gain nuclear power this year I think the difficulty is that this is an example of Trump's uh, basic stupidity that he he thought he was being terribly clever by marching out of that nuclear deal. But of course, it was quite the opposite. It gave Iran no incentive to do anything other than revive their nuclear program, which they've now done. The big question is whether or not Iran can make the progress it needs to make to be able to develop a nuclear weapon without the Israelis 
preventing them. And, and they do that with support from Americans. And of course, they do, they try to prevent it in different ways. They assassinate scientists, they introduce computer viruses that cause their, their machines to, you know, go on the blink, all kinds of things. But the thing they haven't yet done is carry out a long-range airstrike of some kind. Uh, and the Iranians, of course, have been planning for that, and a lot of their uh, nuclear facilities and so on are extremely uh, protected. Some of them are deep underground. They're under these huge concrete bunkers, all the rest of it. So it is a very, very difficult challenge for the Israelis, uh, even with all their undoubted military superiority, to be able to strike the Iranian program. But one of the major changes is, of course, that Israel now has allies in the Arab world, countries such as the UAE and and sort of unspoken allies such as Saudi Arabia. They haven't kind of formalized that relationship. So I think the pressure that can be brought to bear on Iran continues to be uh, rather high. But of course, Iran is enjoying high oil prices at the moment. Uh, The last time there was a big crisis like this, the oil price was really low. So Iran is possibly feeling rather more bullish than it would uh, normally be. Finally, uh, and this may seem a bit incongruous compared to all the majors we just talked about, but the World Cup is taking place in Qatar this year. What do you think of the political dimensions of that? What's that likely to mean? Because obviously it's the most, one of the most controversial World Cup decisions in history. Yeah. Well, uh, and of course, my response on this is not about the football, on, on which I have very little knowledge, but... It was very controversial, not least because they've had to change the timing of it so that it's um, in the winter, so that people don't just die of heat exhaustion uh, on on the pitch. It's a country with no particular domestic football scene and and, and no particular history in the game. And undoubtedly, they they uh, money changed hands in order for for Qatar to be able to host the World Cup. And then finally, there are literally thousands of workers who have probably died during the process of construction. Having said all of that, I think the evidence shows that sport washing works pretty well, by which I mean um, when controversial countries host major sporting events, the fans turn up and they enjoy themselves because ultimately the World Cup's an amazing thing. It's an incredible spectacle. You get to see all these amazing teams and amazing players and countries you don't expect. There's always one one country that goes further than you expect. So I think with all those factors in play, I think it will be a big success for Qatar. They've basically got limitless resources to throw at it. They will uh, succeed in sport washing their own reputations. They will quietly put away all the allegations about human rights and, and you know worker protections. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people will go there and have a wonderful time and the, and the sun will shine, but because it's November, it won't be too hot. Um, so it'll be it'll be great for Qatar. Now, what's interesting there is that is the regional dynamics, because, of course, Qatar is in this prolonged sort of standoff with its neighbours. They've revived uh, their relations a little. So they're no longer at kind of verging on war footing with the UAE and the Saudis. But it's still a very prickly relationship. And so this is great news for Qatar. They will be hosting this big event. They'll have loads of tourists. They'll have everyone going on about what fun they've had. And you'll see the Emirates and the Saudis looking on rather jealously, uh, wishing that they could host a similar type of event. The fans will turn up and so will the dogs, which got very excited then you were talking about football. I could hear it in the yes, background. Yes, yes. My, my dog is, has very strong views on this subject. And I'm sure on her own podcast, she'll be uh, uh, explaining those to her listeners. Well, uh, listeners, if you like being terrified by stuff like this, don't miss Doomsday Watch, which is full of this kind of cheery stuff. 
that brings us to the end of the first bunker of the year, which means it's now time for the panel's escape routes. What are the films, TV shows, music, books, miscellaneous activities that have taken their minds away from the bruising world of politics? Justin, how about you? Um, I've been immersing myself in the Pine Walk collection. These appeared online shortly before Christmas. It's basically an archive of around 200 tapes which were discovered in a house sale on Pine Walk in Fire Island. Uh, They're all being digitised and uploaded. And essentially, they're a complete record of what was being played in the gay clubs of Fire Island from 1981 to 1999. It's partly just the quality of them is so good. They're all recorded straight off the desk with these absolutely peerless selections of sleaze, disco, high energy, early house. And that is absolute sort of real time snapshot of gay life throughout the 1980s in, you know, the height of Reaganism, the AIDS crisis. And this was all soundtrack it all, the most wonderful uh, sort of bit of living history. Sleaze, disco, high energy, geopolitical terror. That's why people come to the bunker. Arthur, how about you? What are you diverting yourself with? Well, as is normal at Christmas time, there's a pile of books I've been given and, and I haven't made too much dent in yet. And there's all the stuff on TV and and uh, heartwarming films that I watch with my kids. But I think that the most interesting thing that uh, I got my teeth into over the break was actually a book by Philippe Sands called The Rat Line. So Philippe Sands, who's quite a well-known human rights lawyer, and he wrote a book, which is an extraordinary book, about uh, a Nazi who was involved in uh, horrific massacres of Jews in the city of Lviv, which is now part of Ukraine. And the descendant of that person who is uh, still alive, the, the son of that person who's still alive, who's an Austrian aristocrat and perhaps unsurprisingly has quite a complicated relationship with with his own background and with his father who was a senior Nazi. And then Philippe Sands, some of whose own family were wiped out in those massacres. And it's a book about Sands' attempts to understand what happened, but also his relationship uh, with this Austrian whose whose father was an active war criminal, basically, and and what I find so extraordinary is the way that Sands and and this the Austrian von Wachter uh, seem to have a good relationship, even though his father was was a sort of mass murdering Nazi. And it's a fascinating story, and I can highly recommend it to anyone. So the Rat Line is the book. That sounds like cheery Christmas reading. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> special guest Antonia Jennings. How about you? What, what's been taking your mouth the world of politics? Um, well, honestly, over the last weekend, I know every second person did, but I finally watched Don't Look Up on Netflix. And do you know oh, what? Yeah. It was absolutely fantastic. The acting's great. It's just got an A-list lineup and it's really, it's just really well done. It's, it deals with, I mean, it's a dark comedy, but it deals with things such as, um, cause obviously the whole thing is a metaphor for the climate crisis, right? And it deals with things such as former industrialized communities and their relationship with new, job markets emerging from you know well in this case it's a meteorite but obviously the the metaphor is um fossil fuels and so that was just absolutely fantastic honestly looking forward to this week i have a slightly guilty pleasure in trash tv and there is a program coming up on channel four called love language language of love something like that anyway it's this year's (laughs) answer to love island however none of the contestants speak the same language so i'm really looking forward to that Don't Look Up is one of the very few science fiction or sort of speculative things that has a strong economics dimension, isn't it? It's like, hang on a minute, resource extraction? Well, mine has been the incredible ITV drama Anne about the mother of a uh, Hillsborough 
victim and the journey she goes on to get justice. It is Maxine Peake's in the title role and it's just absolutely flooring, absolutely heartbreaking and one of the most powerful things I've seen on, on TV at all. We're going to be talking on Saturday's edition of The Culture Bunker to Kevin Sampson, who wrote it, to find out uh, you know, how he put together this intensely moving thing, but that it's also freighted by just so much obligation and you know, it's such a delicate subject to deal with. Uh, but all episodes are up now on the ITV play, and it's absolutely stunning. It's really worth watching. And that is the end of The First Bunker of 2022. Thanks to Justin Quirk. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you to Arthur Snell. Thank you for having me. And thank you to special guest Antonia Jennings. Thank you very much. We're going to be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week, of course, and the Culture Bunker on the Saturday. If you like this podcast, don't forget, send it to three friends to spread the word. They, you can use the share button in your app. It's the easiest thing going. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise, and all kinds of extra stuff too, including a shout-out at the end of the podcast. And here are some now for our latest backers. Hello, and many thanks from me to Sharon Wooden, John, and Tim Jones. Best wishes from me to Gavin Bennett, Chapper Happer, he sounds like a happy chap, and Aaron Dubby. And many thanks from me to Dave Glencross, Andy Hunter, and Bob Lindsay. Thanks for listening, Happy New Year, and we'll see you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, with Justin Quirk, and Arthur Snell. The assistant producers were Jacob Archibald and Yala Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Happy New Year.